Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here this morning. We are, uh, if you're new with us, what we do here at Freedom typically is teach through books of the Bible. So we are teaching through the book of Revelation. So if it's a book that's been challenging to you or a book that's been confusing to you, hopefully over the next several months as we dig into this book, it will become less confusing and more under, you'll have more understanding about this book. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. And if you're new with us, you're only in week 2. So you haven't missed much. So uh, easy to catch up online and, and catch up with where we are. But we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 today. But before we get there, I need to ask you guys this. Do any of you remember these things? Some of you, what is this? Anybody remember? The magic eye. Remember the magic eye? Now, this will date some of us. Some of you that were not around during the 90s won't have a clue what this is. And I apologize for that. But this is the magic eye. And these things were incredibly popular during the 90s. And what they, they looks like nonsense, doesn't it? But here's what you do. If you get in front of it and you stare at it long enough, what happens is this 3D image begins to emerge. And you begin to see this image that's hidden inside of this picture the trick to seeing this 3d effect is to focus your vision not on the surface not on the surface of the page but on a focal point that is behind or beyond or beneath the surface of the picture and as you begin to focus on that focal point this 3d hidden image begins to emerge. See, the magic eye pictures, they serve as a metaphor for how you and I as Christians view the world. To see what really matters, for us to see what is really important, we have to look beyond the surface. We have to be able to focus beyond the surface. Anybody figured out what it is yet? You may be too far away. It's actually Jesus on the cross if you get close enough and look at it. And some of you are going, yeah, I don't know. I don't, this is ridiculous. Why did y'all have these in the 90s? You bunch of old people are stupid. I get it. I get it. We were. This was entertainment. We didn't have cell phones. So we would literally just sit there and stare at stupid pictures like this until they came into focus. We're like, man, this is so exciting. Who needs Snapchat when you can have this? Right? But as we look, as we look at the... The, the, what's beyond the surface, we're able to see what is happening because the deep realities of this world are not visible to the casual observer. But like everybody else, we spend much of our day focused on superficial things, don't we? We spend much of our day focused on food and shelter, coming and going, work and recreation, deadlines, delays, bills, politics, Sports. That's what we end up focusing most of our day on. Now, I'm not saying that attending to those everyday issues is something we shouldn't do. You should. Don't quit your job tomorrow. Just because we're studying Revelation, don't go and quit your job. That would be dumb. All right? I'm not saying we don't focus on those things. I'm not saying stop paying your bills. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that our hearts long for more. Can you relate to that? That in your everyday life, family life, work life, just everyday life, our hearts long for more. 
We, want, we know there's some more meaning behind the surface. We know that there's more to this life than just the life that we are living. We long for more. We desire to see the bigger picture. We desire to see the meaning that lies somewhere behind the surface. That's why many of us are interested in the book of Revelation. That's why when we announce that we're teaching through Revelation, like I'm not going to miss a single Sunday. I want to be there. I want to hear it. Why? Because the book, this book of Revelation unveils God's big picture. It unveils God's plan throughout history and beyond the surface of history. What's so amazing is that before John can make sense of history, before John can make sense of our earthly experience, he must first see Jesus. Before he can make sense of any of it, he must first see Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the only one that can make sense of it all. He's the only one that can make sense of this world that you and I live in. So we too need to see Jesus. We need to see Christ if we're ever going to make sense of this world. If we're ever going to make sense of the life that we live here on this earth, we must see Jesus. He is the author, the founder, and the, and the perfecter of our faith. So after John's introduction in the book of Revelation, he sees this, this vision. And in this letter to these churches, he writes this vision. This vision of the glory of one like a son of man who died but now lives forever and who is coming again for all to see. Let's pick up in verse 7. And John writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined by a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Verse 18. The living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, around 553 B.C., there was a man named Daniel. You can read his, his story in the book of Daniel in our Old Testament. And in 553 B.C., Daniel received a vision from the Lord in a dream. And in Daniel 7, he recounts this vision. And it's a vision of earthly kingdoms being overthrown by God and his kingdom. And Daniel's vision includes these things. One, like a son of man. One who is coming with the clouds of heaven. Who is presented before the ancient of days. For he is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Let's go back to verse 7. Listen to what he says. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That sound familiar to what Daniel says in Daniel 7? This actually should be Daniel 7, sorry, not Daniel 2. Typo. Somebody should proofread these things. I created it, so I can only blame myself. So that's, I'm not blaming Johnny, although I should. Just kidding, Johnny. It's a joke. Calm down. But in Daniel 7, he sees this vision. Does it sound familiar? One who is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth were well on account of him. Even so, amen. So what John is doing here is he is taking this section and then the section that follows beginning in verse 8. He is taking Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 12 and he's combining them to give us this picture of Jesus. He's given this picture of Jesus coming with the clouds. One who is pierced, as Zechariah 12 says, to point to the second coming of Jesus. John is pointing us and saying, hey, the, our Lord is coming again. He will one day return. And Revelation 1-7 is showing us that the one who was pierced, Jesus on the cross, that's from Zechariah 12, who's been given all authority. Jesus said, I've been given all authority on heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. It's in Matthew 28. So the one who was pierced, the one who was given all authority, is now alive. And he is reigning right now. And he will visibly return one day where every eye will see him. He's not going to return in secret. Every single eye will see him, and he will judge those who refuse to turn to him. That's why John says that those who pierced him will see him. And all the tribes will wail on account of him. Why are they wailing? Because he has come to judge. Now, church, this should give us a daily passion to know him. To know him more. This should give us a sense of urgency to make him known to everyone we encounter. This should give us a, an anticipation to proclaim, even so, amen. And this should give us a preparation, be preparing ourselves for the one to come. Darnell Barnhouse warns us in this way. He says, 
at Jesus' first coming, he dealt with sin. At his second coming, he will deal with sinners. We must live either in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 1, which says we are freed by his blood, or we will live in verse 7, which is under his coming judgment. If you will not let him deal with you in love, he must come to you as judge. What a stark warning for us as we study this book and read this book, that Jesus, we, he can deal with us right now in love as we surrender to his lordship and to his authority, or one day he will deal with us as judge if we refuse him and turn away from him. Let's go to verse 8. And the, this is the Lord God speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So one of the purposes of Revelation as we study this book is to, to provide us with a view of history from God's perspective in heaven. We're able to get a glimpse of, of that what's behind the surface, what's beyond the surface of this earth that we live on. And so Revelation gives us this view of God's perspective, His heavenly perspective. So it makes sense that right here John introduces us to God as being sovereign as being in control of all things and able to accomplish all of his purposes. And God here gives himself three titles. Three titles that reveal his person and his power. Three titles that serve as a confirmation and a guarantee that everything written in this book will come to pass. And those three titles are this. He gives himself three titles. Alpha the Omega. One who is, who was, and is to come. And the Almighty. So the Alpha and the Omega, that is the, the Greek alphabet, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So in other words, John is saying, or God is saying, I am the A to Z. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end. I am the one that is, in, that is over all things, that is sovereign over all things, that is control, in control of all things, from the beginning of history to the end of history and everything in between, the A to the Z. And then he says, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. We talked about this last week, but this is a reference to God's eternal and everlasting nature. This is a, this is a reference to God being the great I am. It's a reference to Exodus 3. When Moses stands before God at the burning bush, and, and he goes, God, who should I tell them sent me? And he says, I am has sent you. This is just a reference to that, showing that God is ever-present, all-seeing, all-knowing, the great I am. Then he says the third title, the Almighty. In other words, God has absolute authority and absolute power. There is none like him. He is inferior, infinitely superior to all. He is above all and over all, and he is in control of all things. So, so John writes these three titles for God. The Alpha, the Omega. Who was, who is, and is to come. The Almighty. To give us a picture of who God is. Why is this important? Why was it important for God to tell John to write these words for us? Well, we have to remember. This letter was written to first century Christians. 
to first century churches who were under immense persecution. These churches were facing such persecution that they, did, they were trying to figure out how do we actually live out our faith in the midst of this, this, this suffering, this persecution, this tribulation. And John writes these words to remind them and to remind us the hope of our salvation. He writes these words to remind them that God always keeps His promises. And in the end, Christ wins. Why? Because He is the Alpha and the Omega. The one who was, is, and is to come. The Almighty. And so we see this, this picture of Christ, or of God saying, I, everything I've written, everything I've said, every promise I've made will be kept and in the end, no matter what you're facing, no matter what tribulation, what difficulties, what suffering you're going through, I will overcome. Let's look at verse 9. This is John. He's now writing John. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos and on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So this is the same John who wrote the gospel of John. This is the same John who wrote first, second, and third, John. And he's writing in Revelation from the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there, which is basically a prison isle, and he's been sent there because he has preached Jesus. He's spoken the word of God, and the, the emperor of Rome, and the Romans didn't like that, so they sent him, they exile him to Patmos, which is about 70 miles southwest of Ephesus. And he's simply there because he was a faithful witness. Now, John, at this point, is the last living apostle. The last of Jesus' 12 disciples that walked with him on earth. But notice how John identifies himself. He doesn't say, I, John, the last living apostle, you must listen to me. Is that what he says? No, he says, I, John, your brother. I, John, your brother. He doesn't claim to be anyone special. He's showing us that there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Just because I've been given a mic doesn't make me closer to God than any of you. What he's saying is that we are all priests in the kingdom of God like we talked about last week. Every single one of us have the same access to God if we will take it. There's no hierarchy in God's kingdom. And so John is, uh, is saying, I identify with you. I, I'm a partner of yours. And he shares this partnership that they have. And he says it's a threefold partnership. And this partnership that they have is in tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Look what he says in verse 9. I'm your brother, and I'm a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance. So he first of all says, I'm a partner of yours in tribulation. That word tribulation means pressure. It means difficulties. 
It means suffering. It means affliction. In other words, folks, tribulation is a normal part of the Christian life. We don't like that part of the Christian life, do we? We don't like the fact that we face trials and tribulation as followers of Jesus. Like, I wish I could read it and say, I am a partner in the prosperity. I'm a partner in health and wealth. But that's not what John says, does he? I'm a partner in tribulation. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But take courage, because I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul said it this way, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you and I want to live a godly life, Paul says that we're going to be persecuted. In other words, tribulation, difficulties, challenges, trials are a normal part of the Christian life. They're a normal part of the shared Christian experience. Who's ready to sign up to follow Jesus? I am. Listen, what happens if one day while we're living that it becomes illegal to follow Jesus to gather in this place? Are you still going to show up here? I'll be here. Why? Because we are partners in tribulation. That's why Paul says that we are to carry one another's burdens. We're to help one another along. We are to partner together in tribulation. In other words, following Jesus ain't easy, folks. If you think it is, then you, you might not be following the Jesus of the Bible. Because following him ain't easy. It's hard. It's difficult to live a holy, godly life. Dying to ourselves is hard. And yet John says, I am a partner in tribulation. But then he goes on to say, I'm a partner in the kingdom. I'm a partner in the kingdom of God. This kingdom that we talked about last week, that was inaugurated at Jesus' first advent, that was inaugurated after his resurrection, where he was given all authority over all heaven and all earth, this kingdom that you and I are invited into through faith. See, we've made a, there's been a huge disservice in the church where we say, hey, if you will just pray this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart, then you can go to heaven when you die. The problem with that is what we do when we follow Jesus. We're invited into his kingdom. We're missing out on being a part of his kingdom here and now. God's kingdom is now. We're not waiting someday where we one day go to heaven. No, we have, we have his kingdom now. Now it will be consummated at his return. When Christ returns, he will consummate his kingdom. But as citizens of God's kingdom, we live in that kingdom now. See, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ is about living in God's kingdom now. Not one day when we die, but right now. We have all the privilege of priest and king, a priest of our great king, Jesus Christ. We have all the privilege of being an heir of God's son. 
We have all the privileges of the kingdom now. And so, this, as, as citizens of the kingdom, Revelation is going to show us as we study this book that tribulation will intensify until Christ returns. In other words, it ain't going to get easier to follow Jesus. It's not going to get easier to, to be a Christian. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world know this already. They know the persecution and the, and the, the difficulty in following Christ. And yet, because they are part of this kingdom of God, they, they, they have the power of God dwelling in them. If you remember from our study in the book of Acts, Luke wrote, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So John says, I'm a partner in tribulation. We're partners in the kingdom here and now. And then he also says we're partners in perseverance. Look at this, this patience, patient endurance. What patient endurance does is it connects our present suffering to our future hope. Patient endurance, being patient as we follow Christ, connects our present tribulation to our future hope and glory when Christ's kingdom is consummated. But see, here's the, here's the challenge. That oftentimes, because tribulation, because difficulties, because suffering, often characterizes our present realities, it begins to obscure God's future kingdom. Because we face difficulties, because we face challenges, we lose sight of the kingdom of God here and now. And so John is saying, listen, I'm a partner in the kingdom. And the way you and I reign with Christ now, now this is difficult, but the way you and I reign with Christ now is faithfully enduring through suffering. That's how we reign with Christ now. As we faithfully endure through tribulations, through trials, through suffering, we experience more of the kingdom than we could ever imagine. In fact, let's, let's, let's flip over to Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul talks about this. And I'm just going to give you a couple of snapshots of it. Romans 8, 18 through 19. Where I'm going to read all the way to verse 25, but I'll, I'm going to show you these first two verses, and I'm going to show you the two at the end. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this. For I considered... That the sufferings of this present time, listen to this, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the suffering that we experience, the tribulation that we experience, the hardship that we experience, Paul says it's not even worth comparing to the future glory of when we are in Christ's kingdom, when we are face to face with our Lord and Savior. Then he goes on to say, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom that comes with being a citizen of the kingdom. Verse 22, 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but listen to this, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And he closes it out with this, verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul, here to the church in Rome, is just reiterating the same thing John is saying in Revelation. That we are to patiently endure to the end. That no matter what life throws at us, no matter what challenges we, we encounter, no matter what suffering we face, no matter what tribulation, what perseverance, we are to endure till the end. Now, it goes on to say that John is commissioned to write this letter to seven churches. Verse 11, write what you see to seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, Laodicea. He's to write to these seven churches. Why seven churches? Why does he just write to seven churches? There were other churches in Asia Minor. We know this historically. There were other churches there. So why, does, why does, does, does God tell John to write just to these seven churches? Well, I, I encourage you to do this. Go uh, Google seven churches in Revelation. And I want you to go get a map of that and see it. Because when you look at it, what happens is those seven churches encompass all of Asia Minor. What would typically happen in, in, in first century days when these letters were written, they would be circulated among the churches. And so if you look at the map, John is 70 miles southwest of Ephesus on the Isle of Patmos. So the first church, guess what would it come to? The letter would arrive at Ephesus. And if you follow the map, it literally goes all around Asia Minor from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia to Laodicea. Fascinating. That God would do this. And so remember, we have to go back to what we talked about last week. That number seven is, is biblically significant. So not only is it visually significant that he, go, that he writes to these seven churches, it's biblically significant because the number seven represents fullness. It represents completeness. So what, in essence, God is saying to John is write this letter to all the churches. All the churches represented, represented by these seven, but write it to all churches. So this letter that was written was written to seven churches specifically, but it represents all churches, both in the first century and every century that's followed and every century that will follow until Jesus comes back. So he writes to these seven churches as a representation of all churches. But next, this is where it gets exciting. John gets a vision and a glimpse of Jesus' glory. He gets a picture of Jesus' majesty. He gets to see Jesus. Now, in these verses that follow, there's, there's a lot of symbolism in here. And those, the symbolism represents literal truths. But here's what we need to keep in mind. As symbols... 
Though they represent literal truths, they're not to be taken literally. In other words, Jesus literally doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't know about you, I don't know that I want to be greeted by that Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus literally is not carry, uh, he doesn't carry a literal seven stars in his right hand. Those are symbols, those are images that John is writing. So we know, as we study this book of Revelation, that, it is, that this symbolism is a part of prophetic language. It's a part of, of, of communicating timeless truths in a way that stir our imagination. Now, it is impossible for John to express this heavenly appearance, this heavenly vision in human terms. As we read this text, we're going to see that he frequently uses light. We do the same thing, don't we? If we can't describe something, we'll say, well, you know what, it's like this. Or, no, no, no that's not what it is. It's like that. That's basically what John's doing. He's saying, I, I don't have words to describe what I'm seeing. Therefore, I'm just going to say it is like this. It is like that. And so Christ is revealing himself to John by highlighting his appearance and his message. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice. This voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Here's the like again. It was like, it wasn't, he doesn't have wool hair. He's not a sheep. It's like wool. It's like that. It's like snow. His eyes were, what, like a flame of fire. His feet were what? Like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. But what's interesting about this, upon hearing this voice... John turns to go look at the person who is speaking, but notice that first of all, before he describes the person, he describes the surroundings. Did you catch that? He says, go back to verse 12, I turn to see the voice, so I'm turning to see who is speaking, but he doesn't describe the person yet. He says, what I saw was seven golden lampstands. <coughs> and in the midst of those lampstands, was one like a son of man. So he sees seven golden lampstands. I know some of you are going, okay, that's just weird. What does that mean? Well, this is imagery based on the Old Testament. Exodus 37. We see a seven-branched lampstand found in the tabernacle. In Zechariah chapter 4, we see a lampstand with seven lights. Here's what's, here's, what's, here's what's amazing about this. In Revelation 1.20, because this is a difficult, like you're going, like, what is the lampstands? Do we understand the lampstands? I don't understand lampstands. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, <coughs> Jesus is going to tell us exactly what they are. 
We don't have to guess. Isn't that great? And we're going to see this over and over and over again in Revelation. When we get to things that we don't understand, oftentimes God just says, hey, this is what it is. We don't have to go figure it out. We don't have to speculate. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are what? The seven churches. That's it. That's what this, that's what this weird imagery that John is painting, this weird picture, Jesus says, here's the mystery that you're seeing. This is actually what is happening. I'm standing among the churches. So again, the lampstands are the seven churches. Seven represents fullness and completeness. So what he's saying is, he's picturing Jesus standing in, right in the middle of his church. Remember, we as the church are to be the light of the world. Our light is to shine bright. We're not to take our light and cover it. And so we, the church, is the lampstand because we are the light of the world. We are to carry this light into this dark and evil world. And then John sees Jesus, one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus, walking in the midst of the lampstand. The title and the location are significant. The title of Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's mentioned 81 times in the Gospels. Jesus often called himself the Son of Man. Why? Because that designation identifies Jesus as the Messiah. It identifies Jesus as both God and man. And as one who has an eternal kingdom that will overthrow and overcome every kingdom of the earth. According to Daniel 7. But notice his location, church, and this should encourage us. Notice his location. Where is Jesus? Where is this Son of Man? Walking among the lampstands. In other words, Jesus was right there with his church. This first century church that was going through such persecution, such tribulation, John says Jesus was right there in the midst of them. That should be encouraging to us to know that Jesus is right now in the midst of us. No matter what you're going through in life, no matter what trials you're facing, no matter what suffering you're having that's going on in your life, no matter what tribulation, persecution, guess where Jesus is? Right in the center of his church. Just as he was in the first century. He is with us today, just as he was then. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he's walking and working in your midst. That should be encouraging, church. That should make you pretty excited, right? Not silent. Good, there we go. At least we're listening. Now this should fire us up to know that Jesus is right there with you. He hasn't left your side. Just as he was right there in the midst of the church, midst of the golden lampstands, he's right now in our midst. No matter what we face, no matter what happens tomorrow, Jesus is right there with us. Now, he says that he wears a long robe and a gold sash. So then he begins, so he sees Jesus, he gives this title of who he is, he's the son of man, and then he tells us about him, he describes his appearance. 
says he has a gold, long robe and a gold sash. This just represents Jesus' threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Prophets, priests, and kings wore long robes, golden sashes. So John is just referencing that Jesus is our prophet. He speaks God's word to us. He is our priest. He's our mediator between God and man. And he is our king. He is king of kings. And he is Lord of lords. Then he says his hair and his head were white, like wool, like snow. In other words, Christ is holy, glorified, pure. He is to be exalted, revered, and honored. His eyes were like the flames of fire. This is a reference to Daniel 10. His eyes, which says eyes like flaming torches. In other words, nothing escapes Jesus' sight. He sees all. He knows all. His feet are like refined bronze. In other words, Jesus is strong, stable, victorious. That's why Scripture says that his enemies will become his footstool. Because his feet are like refined bronze. His voice is like the roar of waters. Anybody, everybody ever stood next to a waterfall? Like a huge waterfall, like Niagara Falls. Not like these little trickling things that you get in North Georgia. I'm talking like a big waterfall. Like it's hard to talk to someone sitting next to you because the roar is so persistent. The roar is so powerful and relentless. And so what he's saying is that Jesus' words carry authority. They are powerful. They are persistent. They are relentless. In his right hand, it says he holds, he holds seven stars. And we've talked about that. He, Jesus defines what those are in verse 20. But the right hand represents possession and protection. Remember when Jesus ascends to the Father. What does it say? It says he went and sat at the right hand of the Father. In other words, in that moment, Jesus was given the kingdom. Possession and protection. So the seven stars are symbolic. Not literal seven stars. Revelation 1.20 tells us seven stars are seven angels. And some of you may be going, well, does that mean like freedom has its own angel? What does that mean? Now, the Greek word that is used for angel here also means messenger, means servant. Many scholars believe that what John is referencing are the pastors and the servants within each one of those churches. In other words, the point is this, that Jesus provides for and protects his flock. Jesus provides for and protects and possesses his children. That you and I are under his protection and his provision and his possession. And so Jesus is holding us. Think about this. Right now, Jesus is holding you and he's holding me. And scripture teaches that no one can pluck us out of his hands. Talk about security. No matter what you're going through, if you know that Jesus has your hand. Remember when you were little kids? You were walking through the mall or somewhere and you always held mom and dad or dad's hand? You felt secure, didn't you? But what happened the moment they let go or you let go? You start freaking out because you can't see him. The crowd's too big. Well, <laughs> Jesus has us held right there in his hand. Where you are protected where you are provided for, where He has you as His prized possession. 
John goes on to describe his mouth. Two-edged sword. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? Well, we know from Hebrews 4 that that's the Word of God. His Word is act, living and active like a two-edged sword. His Word. It discerns our thoughts. It discerns our intentions. In fact, as we get to the end of Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus defeats His enemies just by speaking it, by His Word. How was creation formed? By His Word. He spoke it into existence. His Word is powerful, is what John's saying. And His face was like the shining sun. This is a very similar image to the transfiguration. Remember when Jesus goes up on the mountain with His three disciples and He's transfigured. They get, the, they get a small glimpse of His glory. They get a small glimpse of His radiance. They get a small glimpse of His majesty. So what John is seeing in this picture, he is seeing Jesus as he truly is. He's seeing Jesus not as some, some guy sitting on a rock with kids all around him with blonde hair and blue eyes holding a lamb. He is seeing Jesus as God. As the living God who is awesome and powerful and majestic and worthy of our worship and worthy of our sacrifice and worthy of our service. That's who John is seeing. And that's the image of Christ that you and I need to see. Why? Because His presence gives us assurance. His power gives us strength. His Word fights our battles. And He protects His church. We must see Jesus as He truly is. But notice what happens when John sees Him. John sees Jesus, but I want you to look as we get ready to wrap up this morning. As John sees Jesus, look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Listen, church, when you and I see Jesus for who he is, we can't casually follow him anymore. When you and I see Jesus for who he is, we can't say, well, I'll take or leave Jesus. When we see Jesus for who he is, we will fall at his feet as though dead. This reminds me of Isaiah when Isaiah was, was given a vision of the throne of God. What does Isaiah say? Oh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah thought he was going to die in that moment because he was in the presence of God. And John, in this moment, when he sees Jesus for who he is, he's scared to death and he falls down at his feet in worship as if he were dead. Church, when you and I see Jesus in all of his glory, we realize how unworthy we are. We realize how wretched we are. We realize how sinful we are. But notice, note, I love this, notice what happens. Jesus touches him, not to strike him dead because he's a sinner, but to tell him not to be afraid. Look at verse 17. I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. Why do we have nothing to fear, church? Because Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. For those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Him, 
He says that I hold the keys of death and Hades. I have overcome the grave. I have overcome death. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear me. You surrender and walk with me and I will make you alive. I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I offer you the gift of salvation. I've come to atone for your sins. And through Jesus' death and His resurrection, He has removed the curse of death for all who place their faith in Him. Every single one of us who have placed our faith in Him will reign forever with Him. And like John, Jesus says to us, do not fear. John is told to write all these things that he's seen, all the things that are and all the things that will soon take place after this. This tells us that Revelation, when rightly understood, is a word for the first century church. It is a word for the church throughout history. It is a word for the church today. And it is a word for the church tomorrow. And at the heart of this message, the heart of the message of the book of Revelation is not, here's what's going to happen in the end times, although it will tell us that. The heart of the message of Revelation is, is this. Gaze upon the exalted and glorified Christ. Set your gaze upon Jesus who is exalted, who is glorified. See Him for who He is. He walks among His church now. He is the reigning King now. He is sovereign over all things now. And he is coming again. He will return to receive his bride. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do you know this Jesus? Not the Jesus of your imagination. But do you know this Jesus? Who is high and exalted. Who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Have you trusted him? Have you placed your trust and faith in Him? We have to understand that God created us to be with Him. But our sin separated us from God. Our sins can't be removed by our good deeds. It can't be removed by showing up at church. It can't be removed by being baptized. It can't be removed by doing religious things. The only way our sin can be atoned for is by this one who is like the Son of Man, dying on the cross for our sins, being buried, and three days later, rising from the grave in order to offer us the kingdom of God, in order to offer us salvation. And the only way we receive that is by placing our faith and trust in Him alone. Not in our own deeds, not in anything we've done, not in our family heritage, but in Christ and Christ alone. And when we do, we live with Him. And that life with Him starts now and it lasts forevermore. We have to ask ourselves, have I trusted this Jesus? If you have, everything we've described about him is true for you. And when he returns, he will come as your king. But if you haven't, when he returns, he will come as your judge. We have the opportunity to receive him now in love as opposed to receive him later as judge. So trust him with all your needs. 
Trust Him with your salvation. Serve Him despite all the tribulation you face. Follow Him even when you're afraid. He deserves all of our trust, all of our devotion, all of our praise. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the truth of Your Gospel. This Gospel that is so evident in the pages of this passage where we're able to see Jesus for who He is. We're able to see Him in His glory and His majesty and His power. And Father, I pray for anyone here that has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they would do so. That today would be the day that they say, you know what, Jesus, I need You. Not the Jesus of my imagination. Not the Jesus that I grew up with. But the Jesus who is reigning. The Jesus who is real. The Jesus who is, who is all-knowing, who has eyes like flames, who has a sword coming out of his mouth. That Jesus who I can only fall at his feet as though I were dead. Lord, I pray for anyone that needs to surrender to you that today would be the day that they give their life to you. That they say, Jesus, I know I can't save myself. I know I must surrender to you. Because you, Jesus, are the one who was dead and now alive. You hold the keys to death and to Hades. You have overcome the grave. And because of that, I too want to overcome death. And I want to follow you. Lord, I pray for anyone that's saying that today, today would be the day they would give their life to Christ. And for those of us, Lord, who are your followers, just help us to realize that you are walking in our midst. Just as you walked among the seven lampstands that John saw that represented the seven churches, you were walking among us and you hold us in your right hand. And we can have security and we can have assurance and we can have confidence knowing that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. So Father, even in our darkest hours, even in our most difficult times, God, we can know that you protect us that you provide for us and that you possess us. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if today you want to give your life to Christ, my encouragement to you is talk to the person that invited you. If you came on your own, just come talk to me. We don't want you to leave here today without surrendering your life to Christ if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you and nudging you right now. But let's stand and let's worship this Jesus. Let's see him for as he is in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his power. Let's worship this Jesus.